Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for coming uh, tonight to the Londonist talk uh, with Ben Judah about his fantastic book, This is London, which was out, came out in, in January of this year. If any of you um, were thinking of using Twitter, we have the hashtag uh, This is Londonist um, up on the board. The basic format tonight, I'll, I will, me and Ben will go back and forth a little bit, talk about his book. Um, we'll start very basic, so for those, those who haven't yet read the book, um, we'll kind of go through um, a little bit of what, what it's about, a few of the readings, um, and then we'll try to give as much time as we can to open it up to the floor um, for questions from, from you. Um, so, so first of all, um, I, think that's, I think that's everything. Um, I don't think there's anything else I have to um, say. First of all, um, did you have anything to say before we start? To, to talk about yourself or sort of... Um, yeah, sure. Um, so what, I'm a, what you're doing and sort of... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm James. I'm, I'm, I used to run the website Left Foot Forward. I'm writing a book at the moment about the low-pay economy outside of London, so mostly in the north of England. Um, I've recently spent a month working for Amazon, like undercover. Um, it was fairly horrific. Um, <laughs> Um, so I empathise with, with some of the characters, at least, who appeared in, appeared in Ben's book. Um, um, so, so we first, do a kind of similar kind of journalism. Which... Yeah, so it's, the reason I found Ben's book really interesting was so much of the literature which came out of the, the 2008 financial crash was talking about the poor, the downtrodden, the working class, but from a, from a great distance. So it was um, very academic, um, talking about the poor, whereas Ben... Ben actually sought them out. Um, in This Is London, he actually goes, he sleeps rough, he, he, he seeks out the poor and gives them a voice, which I, I didn't think had been... I thought that resurrected an old tradition of famously people like George Orwell, people like Jack London, and I, thought it, I, I really thought the book was good in that respect and that it brought back this tradition of giving the poor a voice rather than just kind of pontificating about them uh, from a great distance. Um, so, well, first, thank you. <laughs> uh, so first of all, um, for those who haven't read the book, um, I wanted to ask you what the book's about. Obviously, we can see it's about London, but which side of London did you want to talk about when you, when you um, set out to write this book? So I, I worked as a foreign correspondent. I worked in Moscow, and my first book was about Russia. And I crisscrossed uh, all of the 14 time zones, shuttling to and fro, meeting sort of corrupt government ministers, um, crooks, bandits, communicating with uh, people in prison by sneaking in phones and the occasional saintly figure. And during this whole experience of many years sort of writing about Russia and being there, it dawned on me that the foreign correspondent's not just uh, an increasingly rare uh, job. The foreign correspondent is a literary style, and it's a literary style which zooms you out of the Kremlin into the furthest kind of mining colonies. It mixes in what you know the oligarch has to say at his kind of glittering table with what uh, the sort of laid-off workers in the aluminium smelter have to say as well. It gives you a bit of history, and all of it is underwritten by this sense that you don't take anything for granted. Don't take um, the clichés, don't take the old myths, go out and kind of investigate uh, again. You know, we don't know what's going on there. And what's happening out there on the ground is very, very important. So I came back and I sort of landed, landed in London and, and I started reading newspapers again, um, British newspapers. Uh, and I was struck by how kind of boring they were. 
And there were two trends I didn't really like that had happened since uh, I had uh, been away or sort of mentally been uh, in the sort of taiga. One was, I call it sort of punditization. It's pundits getting sort of bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and having their own YouTube channels and sort of leaving the Conservative Party and uh, sort of uh, being more influential than sort of MPs and uh, dominating kind of rallies and the 1922 committee. And then the other side, you have what I call sort of Nate silverization. Everything is numbers, everything is statistics, everything is sort of like a surveyor's uh, report on the sort of British people. And it looks sort of terribly clever, and, uh, but actually most of it's Wikipedia mining, so I don't think it is. And crushed <laughs> in the middle is the reporter, the journalist, going out with your notebook and talking to as many people as you can and giving them a voice and just not not expecting that you know what's going on with them. Because I'd mentally been away, when I came back to London, I suddenly realised I don't really recognise this place. There'd been such an influx of money and such an influx of people that I found myself sitting on my childhood bus, the 94 bus, early one morning... And I saw all these Eastern European labourers like, covered in kind of paint, like sort of worn, sort of anxious faces. And I was looking at them thinking, I don't really know who you are. I don't know what you think about me. I don't really know where you live. And I was reminded of when I was a little kid. I used to take this, this bus with my, my sisters. And I loved this game of like, imagining all of these different biographies because I felt I had a handle on all these stories. And London had changed so much. I just felt, do I really know what's in the mind of an African night cleaner? Do I really know what's in the mind of a kind of Qatari princess? The book was this kind of quest to re-familiarise myself and to get into their heads. And I read it a little bit differently. And it's not a sort of classic foreign correspondence book in which the foreign correspondent arrives, you sort of meet a, a peasant and then there's lots of sort of history and sort of numbers. And it, I wanted to be actually quite very radical with it because it's very rare in our pretty censored age, an age where people are very uncomfortable with expressing themselves about a lot of things in certain environments, to actually hear real people's voices. Real people's voices in with all of their colour, all of their anger, all of their mistakes, all of their things they're not supposed to say, all of their kind of diction. I decided I wanted to write this book really having their, their voices. So the book works like this. You've got 25 chapters. They're all, in a sense, like little novels. They're people I found out of the hundreds of people that I, I interviewed who, whose stories I felt said something about, about this society, said something kind of complicated, uh, uneasy to express. And in each chapter, you kind of get inside their, their heads, you sort of uh, see London through their eyes, you see what a totally different place it is from the London that, that you, you might normally see. And the book's arranged in a slightly different way. And it, it doesn't go from sort of rich to poor or from sort of east to west or sort of jubilee line to district line. It follows the arc of life. And uh, London's a very, very, very different place if you've got dementia or if you're 30. It's a very different place if you're a mother or if you're uh, an unemployed single man in, in your 40s. So all of the book follows that. And 
the crucial thing, the most important thing, is that all of the voices in this book are, are people who weren't born here. They're all immigrants or migrants or super rich, kind of who like to call themselves expats or Europeans. It's very funny how they're, they're never called uh, immigrants and never think of themselves as such. And my idea of doing this was because not... It was, in a, just to go back to what you say in the beginning, to both give a voice to the poor and also to kind of unveil uh, the rich. Uh, so did, did you kind of seek out... Um, migrant London, if you like, or was that just what you encountered when you were in London? I mean, the, a lot of the political discourse now is on. Um, you hear lots about, you know, the white working class, but but and they. That's don't, such a weird sociological yeah, of sort of term. Of course, but but they don't tend to like that kind of mystical group. Almost don't tend to appear in the book that much, and it's it tends to be more migrant London. But was that just what you found, or did you t intend to seek that out? Well, I initially. I don't think any of us live in cities. I don't think I live in London, I don't think you live in London, I don't think Charles Dickens lived in, in London. And I don't think... We all live basically in a series of rooms. You live in your own room, your sort of partner's girlfriend, girlfriend, boyfriend's room, you live in your, your office, you live in like the Bakerloo line or the, I don't know, the Connex Southeast. And you don't really live in London. And so you, when you think you live in London, you actually live in your, in your imagination. And what your imagination is composed with is a lot of myths. There are either myths that property developers are kind of spinning or they're stories that kind of stick and help you understand the world. And I find when we say London, we think of kind of myths from a London that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, Cockneys, scenes from Snatch. Uh, we think of... Uh, EastEnders. You know, think, think of EastEnders. And a lot of what this book was about was showing that EastEnders isn't actually true. That's not what East London looks like. And I wanted to sort of to show what the, the real London is, the real new London is. And because London's changed so much in, you know, in a lifetime. Um, when my grandparents came to live in, in Britain, uh, and they sort of migrated, uh, they, the population of London which were born abroad was 2.7%, that's in the 1930s. And today, the majority of Londoners, Londoners are either immigrants or their children. 37% uh, of people uh, living in the city, according to the 2011 census, are, are born abroad. And that's, of course, excluding between 600,000 and a million people who've arrived uh, illegally and aren't sort of filling in the census forms. So London's gone from being a, a city where you know, there were a lot of traders, there were a lot of kind of foreigners, there were Chinese, um, La Chinese in Limehouse, there were Las Bengali Lascars, but it's gone to being an immigrant city. And that's why I really wanted to kind of get across in the book through these stories. Um, were there any particular inspirations? So we, we hear when, um, in many of the reviews that, that were written about the book, you hear the names of like Orwell brought up, you hear like Dickensian is, the, this is a classic one. So, so Dickensian London, and we're returning to levels of Dickensian poverty, etc. But were there any, and Jack London, someone who's... Well, Jack London actually Were there wasn't... any particular, particular influences... Um, like that, who, which inspired you to write the book? Um, Jack London was a, an inspiration. So Jack London, this kind of great Canadian uh, journalist, he, was the, he wrote this book called The People of the Abyss, and uh, he went to kind of Brick Lane and Stepney. It's and, a really fantastic book. That and is. he lived and worked it for, for, for months. And the book he wrote, I think... Not only does he take photos, and the photos are in there, that's one of the inspirations that I had to take photos, which are the ones uh, you're, you're seeing. 
he just wrote it in a way that, that I felt really gave them gave these people a voice and also was about like their world. Like you learn a lot about what they do, you learn about how they view things that you take for granted or you view from a position of incredible privilege and you don't you don't realise that. And I think he's a much better writer than Orwell. I don't really like Orwell as a writer. I hope that the ceiling doesn't fall, fall fall in in Conway. Conway Hall, and I think a lot of Orwell's books are actually sort of very bad because they're mostly about Orwell. Well, Jack London was the precursor to Orwell. It's, Orwell's name is, is kind of bandied around when we talk about this stuff, but people like Jack London, Henry Mayhew were well, Henry the Mayhew, precursors. And it's a great English tradition of giving a voice to the poor. It goes way back into the 19th century. In a way, Orwell's the last of this tradition, and that's why we sort of remember him. But people like Mayhew, who went out and wrote these encyclopedic books, like collecting the very diction of, like, Jew, uh, sort of Jewish, ta- uh, Jewish criminal tangerine sellers on Brick Lane or sort of snail pickers or these incredible jobs that have, have long since vanished. And uh, I didn't really want to write this book like, about like Orwell uh, because I think Down and Out in Paris and London, well, firstly, is a really anti-Semitic book. Endless references to like the Jew, and he wants to like break the Jew's nose, and like the Jew sells talcum powder, pretending it's cocaine. I think that's disgusting and racist. And also, it's basically ruined by this this end chapter where he goes, and then I became a socialist. It's the whole tract of like, and so the book doesn't have my really my doesn't have my views in it. First, it was unarranged in my views, and is in a sense not really my book. It's the book of these, these people. I don't like calling them characters because they're still doing what, what they're doing in the book. They're still, they're still sort of picking litter in the tube. They're still building houses. They're still sort of maids in the homes of the rich. They're still the wives of not quite an oligarch. And so, so that was like one of the differences, much more Mayhew or Jack London than, than Orwell. Sure. Um, one of the really interesting things in the book is when you infiltrate certain like ways of life of, of <coughs> London's new underclass, if you like. So um, you slept you slept rough, for example, with with several oh. Romanian uh, tramps. You yes. and also you infiltrated like doss houses. I wondered how did you go about doing that in the first place? How did you set out and think? You know, I'm going to find some some people I I feel I can sleep rough with. Or I'm going to. How do I get into this doss house? How do you set out to do that as a journalist? I, well, as journalists, I think we have this. <clears throat> as journalists, where if you're a reporter, if you're not a sort of Nate, Nate Silver or a sort of pundit, you know, you're actually a kind of detective. You're an investigator. You're out on the street. You're looking for ways in. You're looking for entry points. How do I get in? How? Where is this way that I can get in? And I, for me, this is just like the thrill of the job. You know, it's this kind of noirish thrill about trying to work out how to do it. And as reporters, we usually just present a fait accompli. Here's the, the article. I'm not going to tell you how we, how we got in. So, but I, I, I've actually put in the book all about my entry points, how I found how I found it in. I'm sort of telling you a little bit about how this is done. And the books, in one way, it's about finding the entry points to London that we don't even know are important, like Victoria Coach Station. Victoria Coach Station is where tens of thousands of migrants, uh, perhaps over 100,000 migrants a year, arrive from uh, Eastern Europe. It's this our miserable Ellis Island. It's not the place for kind of run, you know, runaways on New Year's Day from the Midlands uh, arriving in London on, like, it, like it is in our imaginations. It's, 
it is this, this entry point into a new world. And so the book begins there with me following, finding a new way in. And just to sort of tell you more about how influenced a DOS house, I'd love to read you a, a page. Yeah, that'd be great. To re read you a, a page or, or two of the book um, as I've I found an entry point. This, this picture here, are these the people you, yeah, you these sleep roughly? Yeah, these are the people I slept rough. They're Roma. Um, they're Roma from sort of poor villages uh, in northern, northern Romania. And when they, when they came to the UK, um, what did they? What was their vision of the UK when they came? I mean, I, I presume they didn't come here just to sleep rough. What did they think the UK would like? Did this just happened to them, or uh, a lot of conversations with him actually revolved around. This is the underpass. These are the underpasses uh, beneath High Park Corner, and a lot of conversations with Prince. As um, it's got, you get quite quite colourful names in the Roma community in, in Romania. Uh, a lot of the conversations revolved around why he felt he was experiencing spit and hate, people kicking him. And he, he was living sort of under Buckingham Palace, just above in High Park Corner, and surrounded by some of the richest people in the whole world. And he told me that he had, been, he had run out of money in Romania, and he'd come and joined a begging gang in order to access loans from loan sharks. And the way to pay the loan sharks back was to, to, go, to go begging. And um, they had told him, go to London to the streets of the Arabs. Strada di Arabi. Go to the streets of the Arabs and you will beg and fiddle for the Arabs and the Arabs will give you, give you some money. And you'll have to say that you're Muslim, but I'm sure you can do that. And salam alaikum, very easy. And so he was there in what he was telling me, here is the streets of the Arabs. This is the Arab, the Arab sort of world here. And he didn't really... Un he, his main fear was Polish attack. Polish builders coming off building sites, getting a bit drunk, giving, giving, the, giving the gypsies a kick, like they do back home, just sort of. And he was wondering why English people sort of swore at him or spat at him. And he comes to the conclusion that it is because the English cannot forgive Romania for having been an Axis power in World War II. <laughs> And that they needed to let this go. So we had a lot of conversations in the tunnel about this. And they, they were also very interested in the Queen, asking me a lot about the Queen. Like, is she like the President of Romania? Does she have great power uh, over, uh, over this country? And uh, with the Queen, why is it true that she's given an order that all uh, Romanians must not receive 50p's at one pound around her palaces? And they were asking me, you know, can you, tell, can you tell the Queen that we're really good with putting horseshoes on? This is our skill, and she's got horses, and we can do it better than that, and for cheaper. So, so I kind of... That's, that's the beginning of uh, Romanian London. I'd like to take you to the next phase now, which is the, the DOS house, um, which is the, my infiltrating a DOS house and trying to get in. And DOS house, where people are kind of sharing beds, living, in, living in, in the kind of squalor that we think doesn't exist in 21st century London, uh, but does. So this is about how, how you get in, how you infiltrate. I need to live in the new London. This is why we have been looking for a DOS house for days, first scrolling through the Romanian web listings, then calling up, one by one, the mobile phone numbers they post there. Now we're driving from one to another in a Ford Focus, trying to get in. Earlier, we were almost robbed. I came up with this ruse a week ago, 
because you can't call up in English and get an answer. You can't call up in accented Romanian and get an answer either. They hang up immediately. Police. This is why I've been driving around with the interpreter, a Romanian friend from Enfield Chase. He is making calls. His lie, he's looking for work. My lie, I'm Russian. We find the DOS house the way everyone else does, online. Romanians, Poles, Lithuanians, every mass migration has huge web portals where the migrant can find all the numbers he needs. These are some of the busiest classified sites in London. There are mobiles for forklift truck lessons, there are mobiles for bosses after tilers, and there are numbers for shared rooms. These are almost all in the decaying working-class suburbs. And in the east, this means Newham, then out into Ilford, Beckton and Barking. This is our third night out in the car. The interpreter is a recovering conspiracy theorist who once went to find enlightenment in the Shaolin Temple in Tufnell Park. The interpreter sometimes works for the police. He has no contract. The officers call him up. Then he drives up to the station in his beat-up Ford Focus and charges them by the hour. Sometimes he is actually only an interpreter, but normally the police don't give a shit and leave him to take the witness statement. Often they just bugger off, leaving the interpreter with the Roma thieves, the wife beaters and the prostitutes. He looks at me at red traffic lights. Think about gypsies. It's just the lie. It's the way they always lie. They have this energy. It just sucks it out of me. It leaves me dry. And with the whores, it's the same. The lies are always the same. I'm drained with them, drained. He purses his lips. I'm sitting asking questions. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And I'm watching every night for the moment the lie cracks and collapses all over their face. You know, I like watching for that moment. We've been in the Ford Focus for three hours. I know what you want. He grins at me. You want the same fucking Mo Farah wonder story. You want to make your readers happy. You want to make them comfortable with all of this. I know your type. Well, let me tell you what. You ain't going to find it, bro. He almost shouts. Don't question me. I've spoken to more Romanians than you ever will. Thousands. And I don't see it. I see anxiety. I see exhaustion. I see powerlessness. I don't get no British dream bullshit. I see people very happy about the money, about having work. But I don't see people all starry-eyed. Now, don't you pull your Jew grandparents on me and be like, oh, but it's the same, because it's not. Your lot came over, whoever the fuck they were, and worked their way into a London with a big, fat, booming middle class where you could buy a house for shit and simples, be Mr. Respectable. He eyes me like a man in judo. You can't do that now, never. The Romanians, the Nigerians, the Poles and the rest of the rubbish came too late. The middle class is being squeezed to shit in London. And all these Romanians coming in, they know they're never going to be in it. So they ain't starry-eyed about this city. Sorry, they're as starry-eyed as any cleaner. Very good. Um, it, it was it, that chapter is a good example of it. It's a very, it's a very moody book. I find. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> but, but in, in a good way. In, in like, if you've seen the film Taxi Driver about kind of sixties, sixties or seventies New York, it's you know it's moody, but in a very interesting way. It's you. I feel like you've 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 drawn something out of the real London um, from that side of the real London and very effectively put it on the page. Did you set out to, 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 to get that kind of atmosphere, to find that kind of atmosphere? Um, when you, or did that just kind of, everywhere you looked, that kind of jumped out at you when you looked in New and when you looked in Plaisto, when you visited some of these kind of... Um, well, but London's... Looked for Doss houses, for example. Well, London's composed of these kind of force fields, these energy fields. 
and there's the energy and the atmosphere coming off people and what they do and what's in their head and what they're sort of bleeping at each other in their little machines means that you just feel it instantly, you feel it in your skin as you go from one place uh, to another. And I wanted to capture those, those different, different atmospheres. Um, I didn't know just how different they, they felt or just how fragmented London really is. Some readers sort of read the book and they go, oh, but it didn't really come together at the end, did it? And I, I understand that because, you know, maybe because the way I write, people expect it to be a sort of big Dickensian novel and where everyone's going to meet on um, the Millennium Bridge at two in the morning and the, the tube cleaner's going to find that he's actually the son of the oligarch and the oligarch's in, in hock to the, the gang leader of Shepherd's Bush. But, but that's actually not... That's fantasy. These people never meet. That's why people write, write novels imagining what it would be like. And just the, the gulf of understanding and between people, that did, that did chasten me, actually. So, so like the idea of a world city, we, um, you, know, you, read a, you pick up a broad, broadsheet newspaper and it's, it tends to be the idea of a world city. It's, very, you know, it's about multiculturalism. It's about eating the whichever food you want in the restaurant when you go out within the evening. Do you feel there's a dark side to the world city, um, the, the kind of the new world city where you have this kind of underclass of people who don't have a, don't have a voice in the same way that the underclass maybe 100 years ago didn't have a voice but for very different reasons? Do you, do you, do you feel like that side, you discovered that side in writing the book? I know they definitely don't, don't have a voice uh, in, the same, in the same way. And I think that when you, like, World City is sort of like a sort of slogan from sort of Red Road property developer, de developments or, or, or something. And when you have a city composed of so many people thrown together from different backgrounds, it's a place of like a lot of confusion, a lot of miscomprehension, a lot of fear, a lot of, a lot of hate, a lot of racism, a lot of homophobia, a lot of paranoia, a lot of love, a lot of mixing. And... I wanted to bring through in the book like how people actually sound and what people actually say. And also, I was so fascinated by how people sort of view, view us and view our society if they've just arrived as strangers from kind of Romania or from uh, Ghana. So I'd like to take you into the, the Doss house uh, now and we can meet uh, one of the gentlemen that I lived with. The longer I spend in the Doss house the more cockroaches I begin to see, scurrying behind the kitchen table as I eat, rushing ahead of me in the tight hallway as I come in, dashing along the crevices between the bedding and the wall as I toss and turn, as the three others in these slouching two beds, exhausted from construction and driving, snore like buffaloes. The longer I spend in the halfway house, the more I realise it is falling to pieces. The paint peels, black and white, from the rotten window frames, and shaved into the cracks are flimsy pieces of foam that make no difference to the whistling drafts that creep into the room, cracking the builders' voices and coughing out in the night. The sheets are not washed between lodgers, and the plywood furniture, camp beds, bunks, and springy old mattresses is disintegrating with each passing night. Over our heads, thick, Scaly sheets of charcoal dirt cover the pipes and the water surfaces. The bathroom is a ceiling and four walls covered 
in black cratered Martian moulds growing like a leopard pattern, flowering and spreading as the 14 shower each day. There is never silence on the train lines. They rumble steadily out of the distance like monstrous machinery, their carriages beaming with light, rushing past windows at night. These are the evenings where I sit under the flickering naked bulb in the kitchen and talk with a man they call the professor. The shoulders of this older man are pinched, and fingering his cigarette packet, he narrates the evening news with what he remembers from the programme last night. The professor corners anyone in the kitchen with his views and begins, whether they wanted it or not, to tell them about the Eurozone crisis or the front lines in Ukraine. His brown hair is streaked with silver and his face screws upwards of anxiety, gullied and canyoned with black lines. He is not a professor, of course. They only call him that in the halfway house. He is in reality a welder who has run away from his wife in Romania at the last possible moment before infirmity and is now cracking up as he traipses up and down, barking, looking for work. He wants to talk with the stammering loneliness of a man married for so many decades. The silence scares him. One evening, he turns to me. I'm working in the black for the black. It's not serious work. I go in and screw a little bit here and give a little bit uh, help in his home and others pay me in cash. The following evening, the professor is close to tears. He has been sacked. His brown eyes and upper lip are screwed up into a draining anguish that leaves him at times jittery and at others listless, splayed on his camp bed. The trains thunder like approaching artillery as we talk in the kitchen. The professor looks into, into the rumbling as in the windows, rushing lights flash, flicker and pass. I can't stay here. I can't stay here. This is not what I expected. They hate us from Eastern Europe. He takes out his cigarette packet again, rubbing the plastic outer casing on and off, on and off, with a crinkle crackle. They are very tolerant here. They, they tolerate the Indians and the African and the Pakistani. The Romanian, they tolerate us a little bit less. They only tolerate their colonials, the people they are used to ruling, but they hate us. They hate us because they don't know us, because they didn't rule us, and because we arrived all at once. And it wasn't just us Romanians, but all these Polish and Bulgarians and Ukrainians. They tell us on the sites the wages used to be 12 pounds or even 15 pounds an hour. But now it's only seven, minimum. It's not that we stole the job, but we outcompeted them. You see, we are here and we are ready to work 10, 14 hours. For them, it's eight hours and finish and pub. Not us. That's why they hate us. Um, that was very good. That Thank was, you. Uh, there, was a, there was a note I made when, when reading the book, uh, well, in the review of the book. Um, for, for many kind of recent arrivals, the new London is as far away from kind of suburbia net curtains and, and clean sheets as, as the kind of London of 100 years ago um, was to the kind of titled men in the House of Lords who'd, who'd make grand proclamations about, about um, the sort of society they wanted Britain to become. Do you think... Um, th th these, these, some of the people you've spoken, you're, you've spoken to in the book, it's the state is nowhere to be seen. The state has kind of completely receded. It's, it's almost as if the 20th century, the kind of the century of the common man, has, has was kind of a blip. So for these people, this new kind of underclass, the state is again 
they don't yeah. have any relationship with the state. So There's on, no protection in the workplace. Well, you had exactly. Polish, yeah, I'm you pretty, had Polish um, uh, labourers who'd be picked up and would do a day's work for a box, just a, a mere box of chicken. Um, do, you, do you think that's? Did you find that in in what you encountered? Like, I tried for work on the curb with guys where the lowest wage I ever saw was one chicken and chips. You know, I lived in these for a whole houses. day's work. For a whole day's work. You know, I lived in the in, lived in the DOS houses, I slept rough in the streets, and that worked on building sites and interviewed hundreds of people, and not once did people want to talk about politics, about the Z versus the Q, Zach and Sidi, Boris, Cameron. Politics totally eerily, and for me, quite uncomfortably absent. Mm. At first I thought, why are they not interested? And then it dawned on me, well, actually. They are not interested because these people have absolutely nothing to offer their lives in terms of how they can see it. What surprised me that all these different people and all these different voices want to talk about was about faith. Like this book ended up becoming, in this journey, into people's heads. It became quite a spiritual journey. People were very keen to tell me about how church or mosque or, or temple helped them, about how they prayed, about what they feared, about the kind of Islamic angels that fluttering over Leighton, about the energy waves out, coming out of the Mandir in, in Neasden. And in a way, I felt, well, maybe London is a Dickensian city after all. In, was, in that respect, it sounds like it, because Dickensian London is... Not a political because, place. No, there's no organised labour movement, so the working class are just discovering a voice. Um, but there's no organisation. And the new London, they don't have a voice because quite literally many of the, the new underclass don't speak the language of... Don't, exactly. You know, they can't commute... They don't maybe... They're not involved with the labour movement. The, the trade unions aren't in, the, in that world. And they, they don't... They're not organised. Yeah, so I think it is a lot that, like... That language. Now, unlike Orwell, I don't even know, maybe this wasn't the case with Orwell, but definitely when you read Orwell, Orwell sort of walks around and he sort of finds somebody who's like, socialism, yes. You know, a lot of that's the sort of butt of the joke in lots of chapters. But it, like in the 19th century, I th you know, when, all, when Dickens would have gone around the sort of rookeries uh, of London, there's no politics. You know, in that early 19th century London, you know, it was a very religious place, like kind of fizzing with kind of Wesleyans and nonconformists and, and sort of Methodists and, and other sort of uh, preachers. Yeah, it's a slight digression before we open up to the floor. Um, working in, I've done like, a, I've just done a month's work in, in Amazon and it's been mostly with Romanian, it's been about 80% Eastern European workers, 20% British workers, but the majority of the Eastern Europeans have been from Romania. Um, and there's, there's no, they're, they're, they see themselves as here temporarily. Um, they have no political rights. So this new kind of um, low, like precariat, this new kind of underclass working in these, many of these jobs, they, they lack the political voice because they lack political rights in this country. So you have, you have the free movement of capital, you have the free movement of labor, but this new kind of workforce in, these, in, these, in this kind of economy, it has no political voice, has no yes. political rights. And I guess you... That's much of, you encountered much of that in, in, your, in your book. No, de no definitely. Um, and that's why I was saying about the sort of absence, they're, the absence almost, of politics. Yeah, there almost can be no politics because those people don't have political rights in this country. They don't have a right to vote. Um, whereas the consumers who, who, say, work in your Amazon or something, who, who, who consume those products produced by those workers, they have rights. But 
but very different from the new kind of underclass. I don't want you to, I don't want very to also give the image that, that London is just this sort of, this place uh, of darkness. And going around, you know, I found this incredible squalor, these very frightening things, like this sort of absence of even consciousness of rights. But there was one thing I found which kind of hinted at, at the future and, and hope, and it was, it was love. And the human genome in London is being transformed at an unbelievable rate because you know, London is just about to become, in the decades ahead, you know, one of the, the great mixed-race cities, mixed-ethnicity cities of the earth. And in order to really get into that, I, I was looking for an entry point. And I went to interview uh, a registrar in, in Catford, who, as it turned out, was Polish. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about how she saw uh, the new London, uh, the new London emerging uh, in front of her eyes, the new London where 57% uh, of births are to migrant mothers. There are not many of them, the really joyous weddings. The happiest weddings, I think, the happiest weddings, I think, are the poor English and the poor African. The poor English come in on the discount day when a wedding only costs £49 and they are loud and noisy. When you tell them to move on, they answer back and yap and bray and hoot their way out of the reception hall. The poor English are very quick to dance and jump around and they will yell, come on, my son, like they're at a football match <laughs> and punch the air with their fists. They are so chaotic, the poor English, tumbling in, tumbling out. She thinks the poor look and sound so different from the rich, even though they are both from the same English race. They look cheaper. Their suits and dresses never really fit. But she notices the rich English marry with their women wearing little feather hats. It is very important to them. Everything should match. Suit, jacket and tie. But they sound so different. Like they're from another country. The voice is slower and slurs in very different places. They're not sounding so tonguey with that rat tat tat of a machine gun. They seem not to like shouting or bright colours or cheering, and they seem to pride themselves on clapping and crying with understatement, and they never answer back. Everything is excuse me this and excuse me that and kept to time. They are very orderly people. The more she talks, the higher her voice heads into excitement. The ones she loves best are the African weddings. They will not stop coming. These weddings are like sweet shops. The women will come in clapping in their wrappers like a singing box of quality streets. The men will come in swinging their shoulders back and forth like an exploded packet of Smarties and Skittles. They come in their hundreds. The whole estate comes. The whole area comes. And then there are people who come the couple doesn't even know. They shout out to each other, there is a party, come. And the Africans will be cheering and dancing with people they've never even met. She puts both hands flat on the table on the side of her empty plate. I love the colourful ones, the people who are not scared of colours. And then there are the mixed ones, Polish nannies with Portuguese DJs, Lithuanian cleaners with Romanian builders, Ghanaian pickers with Colombian scrubbers, Nigerian drivers with Polish waitresses. These are the special ones, because she knows these are the difficult weddings, 
the ones that can only happen in this city where love is really free. But there are more and more of them. She guesses maybe a quarter of the Polish girls are marrying something new. There is a break in her voice and a frill floods in. This is impossible in city in Poland where I am from. This, I guess, is what the registrar really wants to talk about. There was this couple I cannot forget because they were so beautiful to me, because they were like future to me. They had come to our office and they had to fill in the form and I noticed they were getting married in Polish church. And I looked up and said, this is my church. And I saw there was this very tall guy standing next to this woman, but he was black and African. I watched the registrar as she thumbs a corner curl of hair. And there was this very beautiful, pale, blonde Polish girl standing next to him. So I took them upstairs to the room where we decide everything. And I saw how African, he was, he was saying nothing. And Polish girl, she was the speaker. They told me they had met in the Aldi in Catford. And he was the security guard, and she was checkout girl. And they had fallen in love, and now wanted to have marriage, and never go back to wherever, and never leave Catford. She pulls a little closer to the table. But I saw he was saying nothing. And when I finished the conversation, I went, you are getting married on this day and that day, I saw relief on the face of the man, like he had been under the water. When he was talking, he had looked so worried. And now he had come out of the water and he was breathing. Because he had been so silent, he was hunched, he looked hunted, like he wanted to hide. His body language, the body language of this big, tall, proud, black man was the body language of fear. He was scared of me. He was coming to me to get married, and he was trembling, like he was going to be arrested. But I gave him papers. The registrar ignores the waiter. And the couple, they thanked me. They were so happy. They were flush and they were laughing because they said what I'd done was miracle for them to help them, to make them safe, to allow them to love. And Polish girl, she said, thank you. Thank you for not taking police on us because we thought we were coming to get married and he would get arrested. An home office would come and take my love away to one of its concentration camps. Because the lover of the checkout girl, the security guard, he was here illegally. The Polish girl looked at her with watery blue eyes. Then she spoke to the registrar like a friend might. Please, come to my wedding. That was why four weeks later, the registrar arrived at the Polish church. The checkout girl was all in fluffy white. The security guard was in a tailored black suit, but he was not the man she remembered. His smile was over half of his face. His back was straight as a lamppost. His voice boomed with laughter, and he hugged everyone with both arms. The church was packed with Polish and Nigerians, and the close ones, those who knew the story, they rushed up to touch her like the angel. The Nigerian mothers in shiny blue head wraps dashed up to her to bless her. The Polish cousins in polyester suits and fresh buzz cuts rushed up to thank her for not taking him away. The party took place that night. It was in the Pebble Dash house of a rich man. He owned it all. And he was the only one living there. He even had space for a car out front. He was the cousin of the security guard and the manager of the Catford Aldi. He had covered his whole house in plastic sheets so it would not get dirty. But when the guests arrived, they rushed to the garden. 
There was even a marquee out there. But when the registrar went in, there was nobody there. Just an important Nigerian chief from Thamesmead or somewhere, in crimson robes and a red brimless hat like a fez. The guests kept arriving. The food kept being served. There was whiskey and palm oil wine and red rice with plantain and tuskier beer and sour cream soup and whole trays of cassava fufu and amala. The builders were laughing and the security guards were coming close, were coming and the cleaners were starting to dance with the pickers and the plasterers were moving closer to the carers. There was one song, then another. Polish rock, then Nigerian dance. As everyone became light-headed and lost themselves in the swirl of smiles where your heart flutters and you might meet someone. The evening turned very slowly into the palest blue and this colour hung there glacially fading for hours over the semi-detached, where everyone was clapping and dancing on the clumpy lawn, boxed in by wooden fences and untrimmed hedges. This was one of those lingering and beautiful fallings of the light there is only in England in the early summer, when the light clings to the city and the air becomes muggy and the midges come out, and something strange happens to all of us who have chosen to make our lives so far in the north. The colour over everything becomes lilac, then pink, and the moment came when the mummers in wrappers began arranging the plastic garden chairs in one big circle. This was when the couple came out. The registrar is no longer really with me. They were so bright, so bright. They were wearing orange robes that were covered with patterns of black circles that meant unity, and round their necks hung pink coral necklaces in a huge lattice that draped over their shoulders. They wore crowns of coral beads sewn together out of hundreds of tiny, shiny orange carved pieces. And they danced between the, gold, the garden chairs. The security guard, he thrust his shoulders out so proud, and the checkout girl, she danced with her hands in the air and twirled around him. And for a moment, the registrar wanted to cry. She thought about what she wanted most in the whole world. She thought about the lovers she had found and lost in this city, and she fought back in memories and voices how she had ended up here in this unimaginable place. Thank you, Ben. Um, I'd like to... I'd like to um, open it up to the floor now, so for, question, for questions, but also short, if you have short statements um, you'd like to make on, on the, if you've read the book or on things you've heard, heard tonight, um, it'd be really great to get as much time to, to kind of get some interaction as, as we can. So um, if someone has a question, if anyone has a question, then we'll get the, the mic going around. Yes, at the back. I've got a very quick comment, which is I shop in that Aldi all the time, and it's... Oh, hello, sorry. I know I'm just crashing in, but I shop in that Aldi all the time. And I, think the I think I'm going to cry the next time I go there. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, someone wants something to say. Um, yes, the, the chap there with the, with the glasses, if we can get a microphone over there first of all. If you can stand up as well, and just, if you just say your name as well before you, um, before you ask or make a statement. Uh, I'm James. Um, I read the book. It was one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. Oh, um, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> thank you. It makes the evening. So one thing, re reading it, I was constantly wondering, though, you know, what are your political views, or how is, how is your experience yeah, informing your political views? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm both quite, quite confused about my political views. I, I'm kind of searching. I've got quite clear views on things like housing. I've got quite clear views on 
things that I saw that really upset me. I, I, I'm really... We, we say we have minimum wage, but we don't actually have minimum wage because no one's prosecuted for not paying minimum wage. So we have this parallel kind of third world labour market uh, in London where all around, uh, in all of the Wixes and uh, B&Qs around uh, the A406... Amazon. Uh, yeah. Don't forget Amazon. Uh, people are just sort of touting up and lining up for work in, in the morning, hoping to get some, and you can pay them whatever you want. So I've got... So I'm very against that. I think that uh, we need reform... Uh, uh, reform uh, uh, are there. So I've got sort of quite specific political views on that. Um, I, I guess you're asking me what are my political views on on, on immigration and what do I think about uh, the country, you know, London going forward into the future. Um, Buying the way my sort of mind sort of works, even though it may not have come across by uh, uh, what I've read this evening, I like to think historically, and I think that there's too much like presentism in our society of thinking that our society is totally unique and has got nothing in common with uh, the societies of the past, and that London, a kind of prosperous and somehow impoverished kind of multi-ethnic city sitting on one of the world's great kind of trade routes or trading hubs, is something that's never been seen before, and in fact, it has. You know, Constantinople, Alexandria, 8th century Baghdad, 19th century Calcutta. And I think that London, London has much to learn from how those societies worked and what they look like, and we have to think about that going, for, going forward. One of the things that all those cities have in, in common is that whenever a trade route passes through your, your city, it kind of becomes multi-ethnic. One of the things that's kind of sad about going to Alexandria or going to Istanbul is the sort of mournful tour, tour guide going, and this is where the Armenians were and this is where the Jews were and this is where the Levantines were and, and they're, all, they're all gone. And that moment of multi-ethnicity is remembered as, as the sort of golden age of that, that city in a way. But also those, those cities are places where, you know, in Venice, in the Doge's palace, foreign powers wielded great influence. They... The Ottoman sultans played politics and corrupted officials and uh, French kings kind of brought sort of uh, palazzos. They only came to once a year and the Holy Roman emperors were, were influential as well. And I think we're, we're seeing that in, in London in a way that sort of rhymes uh, uh, with history. And these were cities where you had a lot of mixing and I think there'll be more mixing because the sort of patterns of sexuality have changed. But these are not cities where everybody sort of integrates and sort of vanishes. These are cities where these communities endure. And they might shrink, get, get a bit smaller. But one of the reasons they endure is because one of the things all these great kind of trading cities of the past have in common is that, that the state tends to be quite weak and quite weakened and unable to really master the trade route that it, it depends on in the way that sort of 19th century Kolkata could never do anything about the opium trade because the city lived off it, or Venice could never sort of tax sort of boats and ships crossing the, the sort of Mediterranean. We're in that sort of position with, with finance, in a way, from the, from the vantage point uh, of the political class. So they become... They, they're, they're sort of one-trick cities. They're very vulnerable to sudden booms uh, and busts. And ethnic communities in this atmosphere and this, this world where the state is weak, they're very quick to provide schools 
And that's sort of one of the reasons they endure and people identified in London today or in kind of Venice of yesterday as being a sort of Muslim or a Jew or because that meant access to schools run by sort of Muslims and Jews. You also sort of get something out of your, your minority. And I think there's going to be a lot of that in the future of London uh, as well. Did, hopefully that answered your, answered your question. Um, did we have any, any more questions? Um, yep, there's, there's one at the back there, if you could get the microphone right there. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm Harry. I was just interested, uh, obviously you kind of did a lot in terms of research for this. What was the thing that surprised you the most or, or that challenged something that you thought before that you found was actually different once you actually went out and spoke to these people? Uh, the, the spirituality. Um, well, the kind of... The, the spirituality that I saw growing up was sort of like half-empty reform synagogues and sort of uh, empty churches uh, with like four grannies sort of having a sort of jumble sale outside them. And then when I found myself, and I think hopefully you've been seeing a lot of the, the pictures sort of flicking... Oh, oh they, they stopped? Oh. Um, you've been seeing a lot of the pictures behind. When I entered into this, this other London, this intensely devout London of crammed basement mosques, people praying in their lunch break. And I entered into packed African churches with, uh, that didn't look anything like the places of worship that I'd sort of, sort of grown up with. You know, these were disused kind of office spaces. These were kind of in kind of joiners' yards. That, that surprised me. And, you know, the, the sort of godless London of sort of Karl Marx and uh, Anglican vicars sort of uh, who don't believe in God and uh, Guardian subscribers, uh, that... The, the, discon, the sort of um, that had been my assumption about sort of uh, God in the city, and it sort of surprised me a lot. So, so I hope that answers the the question. Cool. Um, did we have yeah, Ben at the back? Will you stand up and say Ben again. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, yes. I haven't read the book yet, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, one of, and, and I thank you also for reviving what uh, was a longer literary tradition. The echoes that I hear, uh, and I wonder whether this was a source of inspiration, was uh, the work of uh, Theodore Dalrymple with Life at the Bottom of Society. I don't know if this was a source for you, but he was a prison in a city doctor. He didn't go out there to report, they came to him, but he dealt with thousands of cases. And he's putting together these stories as an essayist. But what it seemed to me is that he also said what is happening with white working class, if you want to call it that, or not working class, um, is that it's forming into some f sort of un class of untouchables. But what you seem to be describing seems to be even a hidden layer beneath that. Yes. Because it's people who are not working, who are not in touch with the system whatsoever. Whereas the people he encountered, of course, came in touch either with police or in hospitals. So there was some kind of social care there. And this was a book from the 90s, and the world you're describing is in that tradition, it seems, but it's, it's a layer deeper, I, it's a layer darker. I, I sadly haven't read this book. Um, it sounds like I should. It's um, Life at the Bottom of Society. His name is Anthony Daniels, but his uh, pseudonym is uh, Theodore Dolrymple. Uh, um, sounds like... From 1998, if I'm not mistaken. I feel I should... We talked a lot about suffering, a lot about poverty and so these 
people are, a lot of the, most of these people are sort of migrants, the, the obvious question comes of like, why don't they just go home then? Why are they still here if things are, are so bad? So I wanted to, to read a little bit of the book where I've been working on a Polish building site in Pimlico. Uh, I became chums with a builder who was inexplicably known as Miner. Miner's taken me back to sort of, sort of drink a few cans of beer at his house, um, well, his house and his sort of garret, his, his garret uh, in, in, the, the, in the evening. And just sort of, I learned from him and his, uh, his girlfriend that evening one of the reasons why people don't go back, even if they think, even if they think they are, even if they think, like the people you've been working with, that this is only temporary. Tonight, Miner wants to relax by showing me pictures of five million pound townhouses he has renovated. I am saved from this melancholy slideshow by the return of his girlfriend. She is too attractive to ignore. Like all cleaners, this girl from Bialystok likes to boast she knows everything about her homeowners. I could hold them to ransom. She giggles a little bitterly. I know everything about them. I know if they are drinking too much because I throw out rubbish. I know if they are smoking too much because I throw out ashtray. I know if they are smoking the drugs because I throw away the ends. She stands and I sit. I know a lot. I know the woman's, I am cleaning in Klapam, she cheat because I clean sheets. I know a banker who I clean in the Klakan well is taking the cocaine because I find an oyster card with powders on the table. She usually, she usually cleans when the homeowners are busy at work. This is the way she likes it. This means she can clean with her headphones in and chat away to other cleaner friends, scrubbing and spraying right across stucco London. But there are times in the glow of an afternoon when moving through the living room strewn with oriental rugs, there is silence and nobody to call. There is just one thing makes me jealous. They can go away. They can go on holiday. Not once, not two times, three times. Go where it's, it's hot. They are calling me, calling me every week. One of them is calling me. Don't come. We go France. Don't come. We go Spain. Don't come. We go Greece. This is one thing that makes me jealous. There is nowhere I can go. Only once a year, bus, Poland. She sucks her lips in. You know, we think English women. She hesitates, breathes. We think they are very, very weak. They don't do nothing. <laughs> but they're saying, we are very, very tired. There is a woman I am cleaning. She's in the Battersea. She has three children, but she's sitting at home doing nothing. She has a cleaner. She has a nanny. She has a, a black who comes to make garden very nice. Woman is sitting in kitchen doing nothing. But at the end of the day, she's saying always me, I'm very, very tired. But why? She bites her lip and wonders whether to go on. I, th I think we are much stronger than they are. My eyes invite her to continue. English people, I think they are very lazy. The rich English, he cannot do anything for himself. 
Every time they need like a hammer or water is having a problem, they're calling, calling, people must do it for them. The poor English is sitting at home, eating benefits, is no working. Her voice becomes definite. They don't want to work when it is difficult. But she is like all cleaners. She never thinks of herself as a cleaner. Like all of them, she, she thinks of herself as a future pr professional. She has big dreams about Britain, unlike her boyfriend, because she can really speak English. Few of the house are very, very dirty, cleaning mostly about polishing and keeping company of lonely house mother and lonely house lady, old lady. These hours of unsolicited advice are the free English lessons and British crash courses of Polish London. English unlocks London. Before long, many girls start flirting with the charming boys behind the tills at JD Sports. Those in love with Polish men start to tell them they want to have children here. There is times when I take a vacuum over the big wood floors in a big white house, when I think, why was I not born here? Then things would be better because I will never live like them. I have a lot of things, you know. I have a television, I have a laptop, I have a mobile, but I will never have like them my own home. Miner's eyes revolve. He can't stand her saying this. He knows this is how his Polish dream house is slipping out of sight. She wants to stay. London has left its Polish builders feeling emasculated. A labourer earns £7 an hour, but a cleaner makes £10 or £15 an hour. Workmen unable to speak English have little choice but to chase Polish girls they cannot afford the cocktails for. Children in England. This is something he really worries about. My friend, he has a girl. Her mother is a Polish. She comes from Bialystok also. But the girl, baby girl, she become like English. It, it tells me, when you are working, you never become like English. You come to work, you go home from work, but when you have the children in the English schools, they become like English. And you have to become English too. He mumbles, otherwise become your children like strangers. Um, one of the, the thing you mentioned there, what that, what that kind of dwelt upon was many of those people end up staying in who come to this, this country initially to maybe just work for a few weeks. A lot of the people I've met, lots of the Romanians I've met, most of the Romanians I've met in, at, at Amazon, they talk as if they, they only come, they're only coming for you know, a month, two months to make some money, then go back home and start something up back home. I uh, found... But you find Actually, they, yeah. they form connections here, then often end up staying longer than, longer than they initially planned. I find, I, I find at first, people will often tell you that because they're embarrassed about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like a way of creating distance between them and the fact that they're living in a DOS house, uh, you know, intermittently getting work, kind of plastering for £4 an hour. And just going, oh, I'm just doing this for the summer. 
it kind of yeah. hides maybe from themselves the fact that they've had they've had to leave rural Romania where there isn't even four pounds an hour for for plastering. So I found that. Uh, I think if you look at this, the statistics, uh, around 65% of people who come here from Eastern Europe uh, do stay. Is that de- dependent on which country, obviously? I mean, there must be some kind of... I, I wish I had the, I yeah, wish I had the breakdown. Sure. I, I, it would be really interesting to find it. Uh, I, I find that the way the book I said was structured earlier is this sort of arc of life. It's about people getting older... You know, these, those stories, uh, in fact, a lot of the stories I've read out tonight are about kind of people, I guess, sort of, people are our age, sort of, sort of younger people. I found, especially with older people in their sort of 50s or 60s, they were often still talking about sort of going back home after, after a few years. And it's what sort of demographers call the myth of return. So I found, uh, I found a lot of that. Uh, I found a lot of that in these stories. Just something that little bit I, I read out uh, in terms of, like, coming back to these questions of integration is previous large migration waves to London, uh, sort of Afro-Caribbeans and sort of Irish around or just after World War II. They worked in big jobs. They worked in factories or they worked on the tube and they worked with a a labour force that was majority uh, not of their own ethnicity. But one of the, the, the... one of the things that's happening in London where you've seen the, the vanishing of factories and the vanishing of industries, you're seeing the vanishing of, of big jobs. So migrants like, like Miner, Miner's working in this sort of small job only with kind of 15 other guys, all of whom are from the same, uh, same kind of Polish background as him. And you see that kind of replicated, sort of if you're a, a cleaner, it's a very kind of isolated job. If, you, if you're working as a, a night cleaner, you might work with a team who often will be from the same background as you. So I think that's going to have an interesting effect on, on integration. And I think factories played a big role in kind of making people feel British and uh, making people support football teams, yeah, definitely. which is something I, I didn't notice on uh, Polish building sites. Yeah, and there's this kind of... The, like the, the, the work I've been doing, you've seen the... It's been mostly, yeah, for example, Romanians in the, in the, 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 the warehouse I've been working, and you tend to get kind of almost ethnic congregation, which tends to happen naturally. So I would be with um, the British Asians because there were, there were very few white British people there. So I would hang around with the Asians because we would... The, the British Indians because they, we would have more in common. And then the Romanians would congregate together and then Somalians would congregate together. Um, this, that, exactly what you've said, it really frightens some people. And I'd like I was just going to say, why, do you think, do you think, did you find that, that frightening at all, or do you think that's kind of just an, a kind of natural thing, or did, did, it, did it even happen in, in the communities you came across in your book? Well, I'd like, I'd like to read you what a Nigerian um, policeman uh, had to say about this, a guy who was born in, born in Nigeria, came here, initially didn't have the right documents, and has ended up as this great success story. He's a policeman, you know, and he's doing well in the force. He works as a policeman uh, in Peckham. But he experienced that. So I'm just going to take you into this conversation I had with him. My London began in 1989. The plane was landing. He wriggled in his seat. He was about to discover a vast, almost imaginary city where freedom and suffocation are a daily occurrence an endless ritual, a constant dance. 
His hands were shaking. This was the beginning. I felt pumped. I was ready to go, like my life was about to begin. This was London, my London, and I thought streets would be paved with gold. I thought the money would be growing on trees, and I would be there picking it easy. Through passport control, his thoughts raced manically. He thought his dream business would soon be milking it. Money would soon be flying back home. He thought he might become a millionaire, or even more, the next big one. Those first few days were vertiginous and free. He wandered breathless along supermarket aisles. He marvelled at uncountable brands and choices. His eyes swelled with the giddying sophistication of the Bakerloo line and Green Park station. His heart fluttered at the electro-shimmering adverts in Piccadilly Circus. He knew instantly everything was possible, everything was permitted in this bombastic city of stucco and glass, be it money or love. Six months later, I was crying myself to sleep. I was homeless. London was glinting, giving nothing up. He clasped his hands together in the African church on Camberwell Green. There was nothing for it. He mumbled to angels as the gospel grew louder. He was ashamed. The women were singing louder and louder. This was not how he was supposed to live. He hated pulling little tricks to find a bed to sleep in, little pieces of cunning, like calling up his friends, ones he barely even knew, and inviting himself round, eking out the evening until the tubes were shut off, before suggesting, with eyes on the floor, he couldn't possibly bus it home. The policeman flicks his eyes onto windows lashed with rain beads. His face hardly budges except for his mouth. There is no emotion there. It is all in his voice, with its pauses and quivers, as he hesitates. Now this seems so far away. I was embarrassed and ashamed and upset. I was lost. I was broken. I was ready to do anything to stay in this city, to stay in this world. So it meant becoming not a businessman I'd wanted to be. It meant becoming a kitchen boy. The first work he found was in Liverpool Street serving bankers. He felt tiny in this canyon of jagged glass, the financiers ate decorative food off porcelain plates, whilst in the back rooms he pulled encrusted grease off a cauldron with a paint scraper. The dishwashers could smell his misery. The bankers would snap their fingers. The waiters uncorked hundreds of wine bottles. They raked it in. But back in the kitchen, the Irish manager barked and snarled at the Africans that one broken porcelain plate was one week's wages. It was like accepting the hierarchy. I was an African person, and there was the white people. Like, naturally, I was supposed to be. There was a lot of Irish and Australian chefs, but the kitchen boys, they were all Nigerians and Ghanaians. That was when I realized that's the pecking order. Here was the golden city he dreamt of in African shanties. He was finally here, but he was discovering that migrants like him clean, wait, and guard the Golden City, never really to enter. Thank you. Um, do we have any more further questions? Yes. Um, the, the young lady down there, if you could get the microphone around, please. Thank you. Hello, my name's Kate. Um, Hello. I want to take you back to near the beginning of your talk. Um, and my question's about help for this new underclass. Helping? Um, help the new underclass. Yes. So you the picture you painted before was one of real poverty and a sense of this new underclass being very isolated and beyond the help of the state. 
And I wondered in your experience, were there any agencies, charities that had managed to bridge these worlds that you've talked about and offer help? And did they, was there any evidence of that bridging? Um, um, well, church and uh, mosque <coughs> were often the charities uh, that I saw. But I, I'm not like I'm not a politician. I don't I don't I don't have the answers. I, I, I don't work in a think tank. I, I, don't, I don't. That's not really my job. And I I don't really I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. Um, Sometimes I worry if there, there, are, uh, there are answers. One thing that I definitely found uh, sleeping rough and with street sleepers is that the majority of uh, tramps in London today are now Eastern European men. Usually they've been the victims of that kind of third world um, labour market of guys picking up kind of plasterers or outside the wicks in Barking kind of promising them a contract, you know, never come, never comes, paying them a day wage. They fall off uh, the scaffolds, they get hurt, they get chased away, don't have insurance, don't know what they're doing, end up drinking and on the street. We have this, like, conspiracy theory in this country, which is that people in, kind of, Bucharest are, like, with this yellow pages of our benefit system, but they're, like, absolute experts on it, and are going to, like, arrive and, like, claiming all these different incapacity benefits. <laughs> what I saw was just, like, the total opposite. But people didn't know there was minimum wage. They didn't know they were supposed to have insurance to work on a building site. They didn't know to have training. They didn't know that... There's no reason you should sleep rough on the streets of London, because there are charities who are available to you, but they just didn't know, didn't, didn't know it was there. They didn't know that there are these sort of feeding trucks in Lincoln's Inn Field. They didn't know all of... There are places where you can go and shower. And by just not having any information, like a whole parallel sort of tramp world had developed of kind of Eastern Europeans, mostly sleeping along canals, along Regent's Canal, sleeping off by the, the river in sort of Hammersmith or in sort of Beckton, sleeping in parks, um, with no connection to the sort of... English tramp world, some British tramps, and the people who are, who have, who've got gener generations of knowledge uh, uh, in helping them. I, th I think, like, Ben's job in a way has been to, like, raising awareness of, of this as an issue, of these people, the kind of circumstances they're living in. I think that's very valuable in itself, and it's kind of our job to then take that and, and try to do something about it. Yes. Um, well, uh, the, the kind of, the, the whole, the mythical kind of, um, that Ben mentioned, the kind of mythical figure I've worked of the, the Romanian benefit who comes over here to claim to steal our benefits and steal our work. Um, I've, I've worked with, with hundreds of, of Romanians over the past like six weeks and I've not met anyone who came to, to claim benefits. You don't, they don't like, leave everything behind in their home country to come and be poor in, um, in this country. Um, what's the point? Um, also, I think it's... Um, the, the kind of important thing that, that Ben mentioned just then is he, there's, a, there's a kind of network of people now who are outside the state who don't understand the, state. the system. <laughs> but then in the, even those people who are in work now, the, the kind of precariat, they don't understand their rights and they're kind of afraid that if they speak up at work, um, this was my experience, that they'll be deported. Um, the, the, these, some of these agencies and companies can just do anything to them um, because they don't, they don't 
receive a contract. They don't receive a wage slip at the end of the week. They're underpaid. They don't know they're underpaid often. Um, and I, I'd say that the, the old solution to this was to organise these people. So during the 20th century, it was, you know, you get trade unions inside these workplaces. But it becomes really difficult because those people aren't voting, so they have no political sway. Whereas the old work, like British working class used to be apathetic, yes, but you, there was a certain proportion of them who you could get out to the ballot box to start to change things. Um, I suppose, to get very esoteric, um, just before we move on, um, you have to then extend political rights to these people somehow in the way that you, they, the way that you know, capitalists in this country exploit their labour in this country. You have to then give those people political rights so they can have a voice, um, have a voice like they have in, in Ben's book. Um, yeah, it, it'd be great if we had some, a few more questions before, before we wrap up to get as many um, points of view as possible. Yes, the gentleman there, um, if we could get a microphone there just in the, in the middle. Thank Hi, you. Uh, my name's Paul. Um, given what you saw and what you now know, if we choose to leave the EU, how do you think that's going to affect? Do you think London's going to change dramatically again, or do you feel that it won't have a great effect? Um, I had an interesting conversation about this afternoon. Um, I, it, the, the EU is a little bit of a hotel California, and if we vote to leave the EU and we leave the political institutions of the EU, which give us political representation and, and elements of control and, and actually a very large influence over how Europe operates, maybe a chance to address these issues of political rights, in order to be able to trade with our European neighbours um, on the terms that we want and the terms that are very beneficial to us and really enrich us, we're going to have to remain within the European economic area and we're going to have to remain within the single market. One of the conditions of the single market is that there's free movement, uh, of, lab there's free movement of labour. And it, a deal with the EU isn't a, isn't a deal with Germany. It can sometimes look like it is, but, but it really isn't. It's a deal in which many of those these, uh, 28, well, I guess it would be sort of 27 again, uh, member states have a lot of influence over. And so many European countries now depend on, on you know, this link, not depend, I think that's too strong a word, but have something to get, something very big to lose if Britain closes its labour markets. They have the power to veto any future uh, trade deal um, that the EU could, could offer Britain that we might, might be interested in after leaving the EU. So if, you, if we would go, we want to keep the free trade and we want to keep access to the single market, we don't want the Polish builders, Pol the Polish government is going to veto that, that deal so we could end up sort of trapped uh, in limbo, uh, a very uncomfortable uh, economic uh, uh, limbo. So because the Leave campaign and Boris and Gove are all saying we're going to stay within the, the, single, the single market, uh, uh, obviously, and that means not, despite their campaigning slogan, having full control over our borders. I think that high and rising migration from Eastern Europe is now a permanent feature of this country's life, and it's why it's very important to understand it. And this, this rate... We don't actually know how many people there are in this country. It's a sort of myth, a sort of Snowden myth that government sort of knows everything about you. There is, there is all this sort of data, and credit card companies do know how many beers I drank this week and have sold that data to the, the advertisers. But 
But in reality, we don't know how many people live in this country by a margin of 5 million. And it's very interesting if you look at the immigration statistics, but we're very unsure of the rate of migration from Eastern Europe by several hundred thousand people. So that rate, which is between 1.5 million and 3 million people a decade, I think will continue in the decades ahead. And one thing I'd just like to sort of leave us on is, you know, London-centric. Oh, that's bad, it shouldn't be London-centric. I think there is a case for being London-centric. It was London's the future of the country. And London's demography, demography today, which is, 45, which is majority white, but 45% white British, kind of white other, crazy mixing that gap, and then other sort of uh, ethnic backgrounds on the other side. That's, that's actually what the future demography of the country will look like, according to a study done by Oxford University, by 2050, which isn't that long isn't that far away? It's a blink of an eye historically. By 2050, it's sort of uh, demographers have predicted that on a lower rate of immigration than uh, we'll currently see, 30% of the population will be, of Britain will be non-white and 15% will be uh, white other. So very similar demography to London. Um, so that's a very different, very different country and I think it's kind uh, of very interesting to write about it. <laughs> yeah, um, we can't take any more questions, I'm afraid, because we've, we've reached our time limit um, I'm really sorry for if you had a question and you want to ask it. I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation this evening. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, if we could give Ben a round of applause um, for coming this evening. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much.